0: Good
1: evening and welcome to Interpolitical Update, a special edition of the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton. Uh, For regular listeners, to Interpersonal Update with Harriet Fraud-Wolf, she is away tonight. We hope she'll be back next week. In the meantime, we're going to talk presidential politics in the New Hampshire primary, which is being held today. The polls in the Granite State close at 7 p.m., and results will start to roll in soon after in what is the first and will probably be the last competitive presidential primaries of 2024. (laughs) Now, why does a nearly all-white state, with half the population roughly of Brooklyn, play such a large role in the presidential nominating process? We'll get to that, and we'll also talk about why Joe Biden and Donald Trump appear on the verge of locking up their party's nominations, and the, and the very different paths they are taking in New Hampshire, uh, where Biden's name isn't even on the ballot, but he is hoping for a victory. Uh, we're also going to be joined by my colleague Nicholas Powers, longtime contributing editor at The Independent. Uh, Nick and I talk uh, a lot of politics and enjoy those conversations, and um, I'm really excited to have uh, Nick uh, join us tonight. Uh, Nick, welcome to Inter Political Update.
0: Oh, it's good to hear your phantom voice over the radio.
1: <laughs> yes. So, um, uh, you know, like I said, we have this strange situation where this very small state uh, plays an outsized role in the political process because whichever states uh, vote first tend to have an outsized impact. They uh, influence the who the media covers, who donors give money to, you know, basically who's seen as a winner and a loser. And... uh Trump overwhelmingly won the Iowa caucuses, but New Hampshire always has the first primary. They've written it into their state constitution that they, they, their primary must be a week or more before any other state. Of course, we had this. So for the Republicans, it's sort of the same as usual. There's a, a normal primary, and the two main candidates uh, left are Donald Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Um, on the on the Democratic side, uh, uh, Biden and his uh, supporters at the Democratic National Committee uh, wanted to make South Carolina the first state, and they uh, kicked uh, Iowa and New Hampshire to the curb. Uh, Iowa played it midwestern nice and didn't complain too much, and New Hampshire got a lot more ornery and and decided to have their primary anyway, even though no delegates will be allocated. You have a situation where there's. Uh, two candidates on the ballot, uh, Marianne Williamson, the New Age author, uh, who ran four years ago, and also uh, three-term uh, Minnesota congressman, uh, Dean Phillips. And there's also an effort to write in a ceasefire as the uh, uh, candidate uh, on the Democratic side. And meanwhile, uh, Biden is in the awkward position of having kicked New Hampshire to the curb, but still wanting to win a primary that he never wanted to have happen <laughs> and and he's trying because he's not on the ballot he, c- he couldn't put himself on the ballot in a again in a primary that he didn't want to see happen uh so now he his supporters are trying to write him in but he can't act like he actually wants them to write them in so he's he hasn't campaigned at all he's had surrogates up in new hampshire so we'll find out soon enough how that uh, all works out of course uh uh, the Democratic turnout will be probably fairly low. Uh, but if, you know, Biden were to finish, say, under 50% against two very weak candidates and a, you know, in ceasefire <laughs> running strong as well, uh, you know, there could be uh, some embarrassment there. A- and also it would, I think, r- r- uh, renew a lot of questions about uh, about whether, you know, the Democrats should really try to uh, nudge uh, Biden to leave the race and I'll let someone younger run. I mean, Nick, how are you feeling right now, just sort of looking at this uh, slog of a presidential race that New Hampshire will probably uh, confirm tonight?
0: Just a heart-sinking dread as I see the Trump juggernaut cross the finish line and acutely aware that it seems America is split into very very different and polarized, deep stories. So for those of us, you know, on the left or even liberals, we see Trump as an existential threat to democracy. And for the voters that are pulling the lever for him uh, in New Hampshire and obviously in states to come, he's their savior. He's going to protect them. And to see that the momentum is building behind him again, Um, it's, yeah, it's kind of like blood curdling. (laughs) And, uh, but you know, even in the tragic lows of history, there's always a moment of absurdity and comedy. So to see Nikki Haley getting, uh, see Nikki Haley getting propped up like a man with crutches with all of this, you know, uh, money to try to put a dent into Donald Trump. I think that was a, that, that was a comedy that was worthy of a episode of three, three's company. Um, Sure, so, and
1: watching uh, Trump uh, uh, dismantle uh, Ron DeSantis uh, with his sort yeah. of uh, taunting playground bully style. Uh, 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 DeSantis has certainly been a bully in his home state, but was no match uh, for Trump, and we got to all watch him become, be eviscerated.
0: Yeah, so I guess I wanted to ask you, John, what do you think are, you know, so beyond what I would say is the liberal mainstream kind of, um, horse race analysis and the, the kind of, I would say, individual personality dissection, right? So the mainstream media seems to be very good at saying, oh, this is their how their personality ignites or puts a wet blanket on the, the voting. Um, what are some of the social forces that you see that um, are larger than the uh, horse race, you know, larger than just, you know, taking a look at this person as a character in a story? What are the social forces that are really propelling um, you know, either Trump or trying to propel, uh, Biden.
1: Right. I mean, I mean, I do think uh, Trump has proven to be a pretty singularly unique, uh, personality in American politics. But even, even so, as you say, uh, social forces drive the rise of, of someone like that. And I, I think as others have noted over the last eight years, uh, you know, Trump speaks uh, essentially to the anxieties and the resentments of much of the Republican base, which is an overwhelmingly white uh, voting block. Uh, m- many of these are people who live outside of the major uh, cosmopolitan cities of the east and west coast and, and, and feel uh, to put it gently, you know culturally alienated <laughs> from from that cosmopolitan culture. Of course, a, a, a more blunt way of putting it is they just don't feel uh, very comfortable with living in an increasingly uh, diverse country, racially diverse, uh, 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 more freedom uh, for women over the last 50 years, uh, at least until the Supreme Court uh, issued its uh, abortion ruling a couple of years ago. Um, and, and, and obviously a more uh, a freedom and openness around issues of gender and uh, sexual identity and all of that. So they feel uncomfortable in this world. And, and certainly uh, many of them live in small towns or rural areas that have been left behind economically. So there is a material Reality to that resentment as well, I think uh, what Trump offers them (laughs) is not any sort of coherent program to improve their lives, um, but he offers retribution against the people they perceive as their uh, enemy, their political enemies. (laughs) You know, again, he's not going to like offer a farm program for the, the, you know, the small farmers or economic uh, development for the small towns or any of that stuff. He offers revenge. He offers revenge. revenge. I will be your retribution. I think he said way back when he first got in the race again. All right.
0: Let me follow up on that one point because the second question is Do you see an Achilles heel in that Republican conservative block of voters that are looking for him to enact retribution, revenge, to secure their space in an ever changing America? You know, because there's lots of appeals that the left makes. Some appeals are economic appeals, uh, like a Bernie's economic populism. Some are racial appeals. Some are gender uh, appeals to, you know, free people's innate, you know, curiosity and imagination around sexuality. Others are nationalistic appeals. Uh, I mean, like, is is there any kind of appeal that you thought that the left had that could um, hit that Achilles heel? Because, you know, the thing is, every... Every ideology, every ideologically driven group has an Achilles heel, has a weak spot.
1: Right. I mean, certainly, uh, I think the Democrats Uh would would benefit from uh, having a much more of an economically populist uh, uh, stance in in their politics. Uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of Republicans and a lot of independents, of course, uh, are not that well off economically, but you can be. You know, living in a trailer park, making thirty-five or forty thousand dollars a year, and and face it, your rents are going up uh, all the time because a private equity firm, you know, bought up the trailer park company, and and still end up voting Republican, uh, just because the Democrats uh, don't seem to stand for much of anything except a a sort of an elite uh, social liberalism, at least as portrayed through you know Fox News and talk radio, and and again, the Republicans. Just end up peeling, uh, you know, sort of trying to tap into some of those culture war uh, resentments. You know, if the if the Democrats are much more forceful around minimum wage, uh, child care, uh, uh, you know, uh, some, some version of universal health care, improves uh, social security benefits, you know, sort of on down the line, uh, you know, I think they could definitely peel off a lot of support. It's frankly ridiculous <laughs> that millions or tens of millions of uh, Americans of modest means will vote for this a uh, billionaire who grew up in the you know in in the highest levels of privilege and has been uh, a total obnoxious jerk his whole life and doesn't care one bit about the average american but they you know that is that says a lot about the failure of the of the modern democratic party of course you know i thought uh, bernie sanders was sort of the perfect avatar for uh you know an economically populist message but democratic primary voters 4 years ago uh convinced themselves that uh he was unelectable so they did not uh ultimately choose him to be their nominee so here we are with Biden uh, running for re-election um so yeah more populism would certainly uh, uh, you know be good uh Biden had a, a, a an excellent agenda in, in that build back better legislation that dominated the first year of his presidency uh most of that was shredded uh, by a couple of democratic senators who held the key votes uh, in congress uh cinnamon mansion i think Biden should be running on a promise to, uh, to fight and, uh, implement much of the rest of that build back better legislation. Almost every item in that legislation from enhancing Medicare coverage, uh, to, uh, expanding, uh, child care and, and so many other things, uh, had, uh, support in public opinion polls 60, 70, even 80%. Uh, but it all got gummed up in Congress and, and, and ultimately most of it, uh, died. But that is an agenda uh, that if he had implemented it in 2021, he would be coasting the reelection. I think it's still worth uh, uh, fighting for and making a centerpiece of his 2024 campaign. He is not doing that. He's doing the opposite. There's literally nothing he is offering to do to help people. Instead, the Democrats have settled on this idea that they're going to run on what they call Dobbs and democracy, which is what they won that did very well with in the midterms, uh, um, rallying people, you know, uh, Tapping into the incredible uh, rage uh, that so many people felt uh, after the Supreme Court ruling that uh, repealed Roe v.ersus Wade and obviously uh, women and girls and other uterus possessing people uh, found especially uh, outrageous. Um, But I think obviously even for a lot of men, if you just uh, care about the well-being and the dignity and freedom of women, uh, find uh, the rollback of abortion rights uh, appalling. And uh, so they're certainly going to lean into that again, and and also into the sort of the imagery of January sixth and Trump's extremism and threats to democracy, and that's all worth saying. But I just don't know if that's uh, going to be enough. And but they don't want to offend their large, uh, you know, donors on Wall Street and corporate America. So emphasizing things like this that don't uh, have any material cost uh, to their one percent supporters seems to be the direction uh, Biden and the in uh, his team
0: uh, want to go. And, uh right, well, let me I, ask you a quick follow-up question because I know we're going to run out of time soon. But I think what you said leads, for me, and maybe for the listeners, leads to me to, to wonder, where is that economic populism on the left or in the liberal um, coalition now? Is it hibernating? Is it waiting to burst forth like a volcano uh, where it erupts? Um, I think you know, a little who, bit of both. Who's carrying the band? I
1: mean, I think the problem is you ha- when you have a, d- a democratic presidency uh, like like Biden's or Obama's or Clinton before him, it tends to uh, be like a giant blanket on on the progressive wing of the party. This the the, the possibility of what can happen just uh, becomes smothered and, and and deflected into this notion that well we have to uh, you know preserve the Democrat uh, and get him reelected you know less even worse things happen. So um, there's. There's no traction right now for that, but the 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 material needs are uh, definitely out there. Um, you know, look, I think Bernie obviously is in the sort of the twilight of his career. He uh, you know will probably get reelected this year in Vermont for another six years. Uh, but the, you know, the future uh, on the uh, left wing of electoral politics right now is, I think, clearly in the squad. Uh, I, I mean, their numbers are not. Uh, large, there's there's seven of them basically in Congress right now, depending how you you count it up, uh, but they have a very outsized uh, impact, especially obviously Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, the Congresswoman from Queens and the Bronx, um, and uh, you know I think you know if Biden does squeak through and get reelected, I think there's going to be a tremendous uh, up you know upwelling of demands for not only a new generation of leadership in the Repo- in the Democratic Party. Um, you know, starting in 2025. But I think uh, demand for a lot of these uh, unfinished uh, uh, business to finally um, start to move forward. So, you know, it's kind of like, all right, first, we got to beat Trump one more time. But I really think if if, if Biden does have a second term, I think you're going to see another surge from the, uh, the progressive left wing uh, of the Democratic Party, uh, just uh, this sort of uh, stale, stifling status quo that Biden embodies, I think is Uh, deeply frustrating. And of course, uh, the younger generations, the millennials, the uh, Generation Z, the people under 40, uh, the most progressive uh, political cohorts in American history, uh, their demands and desires have been stifled repeatedly by Democratic Party leadership. Uh, (laughs) I don't know they can uh, continue to stifle that in the future. Of course, the question is, you know, if Trump were to win uh, this year, what sort of democracy we would even have in two or Uh, Well, that's
0: what I wanted to maybe ask, because I I know we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask, if Trump won, what do you think is the playbook that he's going to use? Have you seen it in other places? Well,
1: Yeah, I mean, there's uh, major Republican uh, think tanks in Washington, uh, led by the Heritage Foundation, that have literally put out a playbook 2025, where they describe uh, how they basically want to dismantle the federal government, uh, how they want to put much of the civil service uh, under uh, uh, political control uh, to dismantle it and then weaponize it uh for their own political ends and that's just the beginning i mean i think you would see essentially uh governance i think you would see what you see in a lot of red states where the republicans already control uh the you know the executive the legislature and the courts uh which uh is very aggressive attacks on unions and voting rights uh for for starters uh l- large tax cuts for the rich Uh, end of almost all regulation of business, uh, a a real leaning into supporting, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, Christian, uh, right-wing Christian uh, social initiatives. I think you would see an attempt probably uh, to uh, pass a national abortion ban, which would also have to be uh, somehow enforced. I I think what people maybe don't realize is uh, the uh, abortion uh, dystopia we're looking at could be significantly worse than even in the pre-Roe era because of the power of surveillance and the ability to monitor uh, uh, women and girls, uh, their menstrual cycles, where they travel, all of that. I mean, you just think a little bit about the level of uh, surveillance uh, that exists or the capacities that exist. You could definitely see a very uh, dystopian developments in in that area. Um, Definitely attempt to roll back voting rights and and other measures – Uh, to try to entrench their power. I think you would see an attack on the freedom of the press, uh, a rolling back of libel laws to make it much easier to sue uh, the media for uh, um, not only for factual errors, but also, uh, you know, for offending uh, powerful people and just make the costs of uh, the legal costs of of running a a free and critical press uh, unbearable for, for many outlets. So there's a lot of ways this country could be dramatically changed for the worse. I think that the Republicans had a full uh, run of power, but obviously uh, Biden's performance is deeply uh, disappointing, especially his support for this genocidal war uh, in Gaza and, and maybe uh, an expanding regional war in the Middle East. Um, so it's a tough time to be in right now, that's for sure. Um, we'll, I guess we'll see uh, what uh, the New Hampshireites have to say
0: uh, starting uh, in about seven minutes. Good. Right, and uh, just real quick, When you think because you've seen many you've seen at least one or two generations now of the left, you know, you've seen Gen X, um, you know, you've seen obviously the crisis, everything from like 9-11, the beginning of the war on terror to COVID. Yeah. And now I would say we're in the millennial left. And I'm just curious, as we're as this generation's left is approaching a crisis moment, how do you think it measures up or how do you think it's different um, than the generations before, both for good and for bad.
1: Yeah, we have about 30 seconds left here before we have to sign off. Um, but uh, um, next episode. <laughs> no, but just real quickly, the, the thing is over the last eight years, and this was really propelled both by Occupy Wall Street and, and then the, the Sanders campaign, the left, had a, a resurgence in this country that we haven't seen in you know, 50, 60, 70 years, uh, gained a toe to hold of power. I mean the squad in Congress, over 200 socialists elected to various uh, local and state offices. Um, the ideas, of uh, many of the ideas of the left became more prominent. The problem is, it's still only a toehold in power. And so we're in this sort of in-between phase of the uh, electoral left being more powerful and more prominent than it has been in a very long time. But also, it's still a very long ways from being able to implement, uh, you know, it's a uh, uh, program, especially a program of expanding a universal social benefits and health education and other sectors of life that would make working people's lives more, uh, sustainable and, 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 um, you know, able to thrive. So we're in that in between point, uh, and, um, somehow we've got to get through 2024 and hope we can fight for something better, uh, starting next year. I think we'll have to leave it at that. But I thank everybody for joining uh, this special edition of the Independent uh, News Hour, the uh, inner political update. Uh, this is uh, John Charlton. I've been talking with Indy Contributing Editor Nicholas Powers. You can find the Independent at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T.org. Thank everybody for uh, listening uh, per minute. The show of New York City Chapter of DSA, one of the leading forces in that millennial left that we were just talking about. Bye-bye.